the EU faces a new risk, the risk of structural supply shortages. Welcome to today's Jolt. It's the 15th of November. I'm Sam Morgan, your host. Later in the episode, I'll be looking at how the global race for raw materials is heating up and what Europe is doing to try and keep up. First, though, let's take a look at the stories making headlines around the world. In the United States, a new federal report has warned that the country faces substantial and increasing economic costs due to climate breakdown. The fifth National Climate Assessment draws on findings from 13 agencies and concludes that the effects of climate breakdown will be felt most strongly by the young, elderly and poorer communities. It also says that the US is simply not decarbonizing at a fast enough rate. President Joe Biden said the report not only showed the problems, but also the solutions, and announced $6 billion in funding for climate resilience. That includes nearly $4 billion to update the US power grid, and $2 billion for community-led carbon-free energy projects. Biden will meet China counterpart Xi Jinping later today, with cooperation on climate set to be on the agenda. Germany's government has agreed to underwrite a 15 billion euro rescue package for Siemens Energy. Berlin will guarantee 7.5 billion euros in loans provided by private lenders, with additional credit lines and funding provided by Siemens itself. Siemens Energy admitted it was in trouble earlier this year and is on track to make a multi-billion euro loss for 2023. Government support was requested in order to safeguard a backlog of clean energy projects worth more than 100 billion euros. Just briefly, as this is a bit of breaking news and I've managed to sneak this into the edit by the skin of my teeth, Germany's Constitutional Court has ruled that a 2021 budget dedicating 60 billion euros to climate measures is not allowed. That means the government has some serious accounting to do to find the money from somewhere else. Ach mein Gott. The United Kingdom has become less attractive for clean energy investments, according to an annual ranking of markets. EY's new index shows that the UK has dropped from 4th spot to 7th, and has lost its coveted top spot in offshore wind attractiveness. A recent failed auction did long-lasting damage to the country's green reputation. The United States continues to top the ranking, ahead of Germany, China, France, Australia and India. France's government has agreed a new electricity price with state-owned nuclear firm EDF. An average price of €70 per megawatt hour will now be charged, with a new capture mechanism kicking in when the price goes beyond €78. An increasingly large proportion of revenues will then be redistributed back to end-users if the price climbs above certain thresholds. This draws a line under long talks between the government and EDF about replacing a temporary power price control system that expires in 2025. France and Ireland have celebrated the beginning of construction works on a new undersea power cable that will link their grids. It will be Ireland's first direct connection with the EU power market since the UK left the block. The Celtic interconnector will have a capacity of 700 megawatts, run for 500 kilometers under the sea, and comes with a 750 million euro price tag. It is due to be completed in 2026 and hooked up to the grid by 2027. 
Belgium's grid operator has unveiled plans to safeguard biodiversity and the environment around an energy island it is building in the North Sea. The Princess Elizabeth Island will reportedly be the world's first energy island and will act as a hub for wind farms and undersea electricity cables. Ledges for migrating birds, panels for fish to swim through and baskets where oysters can grow are all part of the plans. The island is supposed to be finished by 2026 when it will actually be Belgium's first island, artificial or natural. There's a good pub quiz fact for you free of charge. Icelandic authorities are building a wall around a geothermal power plant in a bid to protect it from lava flows. You've probably seen the pictures on the news of cracks opening up on street corners and steam gushing from vents as Iceland experiences worrying volcanic activity. More than 800 earthquakes have been reported, with seismologists warning an eruption could be imminent. The power plant's operators hope the wall will divert any potential lava around the site. Fingers crossed, eh? India is on course to install a record 17 gigawatts of solar power this year. Previous record was 14 gigawatts, but the situation has improved through auctioning, utility-scale projects coming online, and supply chain constraints easing. Total solar capacity currently stands at around 72 gigawatts. India is in talks with other countries around signing up to a pledge to triple renewable energy rollout by 2030. The initiative is due to be unveiled at this month's COP28 summit. Australia has opened up a consultation on whether to deploy a carbon border tax. The government is considering following the EU and setting up its own CBAM, in a decision that is driven largely by a desire to protect its exports of materials like aluminium and hydrogen from green tariffs. That means that Australia joins the likes of Canada, Japan, South Korea, the United Kingdom and the United States in considering the CBAM option. Check the show notes for a link to the Australian consultation process. And the tiny Caribbean island of Dominica has set up the first ever protected reserve for sperm whales, the world's largest predator. 800 square kilometres of waters that act as popular nursing and feeding grounds for the whales will now be protected. Not only is this an incredible environmental story, there's also a surprising and perhaps stinky climate element to it. Sperm whales defecate at the surface of the water before diving to massive depths to hunt squid, and scientists have observed that they unload more than usual off the coast of Dominica. Whale poop feeds plankton blooms, which absorb quite a lot of CO2. When the plankton dies, it drops to the ocean floor, acting as a natural carbon capture and storage system. By estimating that Dominica is home to about 250 sperm whales, scientists calculate that protecting them is like protecting about 70 square kilometers of forest or taking 5,000 cars off the road every year. Wow, what a story. That's it for today's news updates. Now let's take a closer look at the story of the moment. Raw materials are going to be absolutely essential for the energy transition as it gathers pace and becomes more widespread. Wind turbines need aluminium, electric car batteries need an entire smorgasbord of rare earth metals, and electric grids will need thousands and thousands of kilometres of copper. And that's just for starters. Governments and companies around the world are gradually realising that the trade in these materials will be crucial in the coming decades. Geopolitics have been driven by fossil fuels for well over a century, but green tech ingredients will be the new oil, as politicians repeat rather tediously. They are right to an extent though, so let's have a look at how certain countries and companies 
are changing the way they do business. Starting off with the private sector, even the big bad fossil fuel firms are getting in on the Raw Materials Act. Earlier this week, Exxon unveiled plans to enter the lithium mining business in the southern United States, 50 years after the oil and gas major decided there wasn't really enough money in building batteries. There's also the case of the developer hoping to open the UK's first geothermal power plant. They're also looking for investment of more than half a billion pounds to mine for lithium as well. You can see which way the wind is blowing when these kinds of sums of money are being thrown around, I think. Say raw materials and think China. There's no getting away from it. According to recent EU data, China has a 45% share of the critical raw materials market. The United States places second with just 7%, and Brazil gets the bronze medal with 5 China's massive share is thanks to the luck of the geographical draw, but it's also thanks to planning ahead, having a cavalier attitude towards environmental and labour standards, and not being scared to inject massive subsidies into various sectors. Puts Beijing in a commanding position. Earlier this year, the government put export controls on various rare earth metals, which are crucial to microchip production. Providing just a taste of the geopolitical minefield we are all approaching. It's not the first time that China has played this card, and it certainly won't be the last. Indonesia too, home to some of the world's largest nickel and bauxite reserves, is also playing the same game. A ban on exporting raw ores means that processing needs to be done domestically. Europe and other countries have challenged this policy at the World Trade Organization, and the case is ongoing. You can see why regulators are worried. That is why the European Union has agreed on a critical raw materials act to help get supply chains in line and reduce dependencies. Europe's industry chief, Thierry Breton, reiterates here why this is essential. So to put it simply, if we want to succeed in the green and digital transition, uh, if we want to ensure also our technological sovereignty, we first need to secure access uh, uh, to critical raw materials. And this is where things, of course, getting uh, complicated. Because global demand is projected to um, uh, outrate supply, meaning that the EU faces a new risk, the risk of structural supply shortages. Because, of course, uh, we are not uh, uh, the only one who needs critical raw materials, as uh, every single forecast points to a colossal increase in demand both uh, uh, from our allies, or sometimes called uh, like-minded partners, uh, and, uh, and also systemic rivals around the world, which are stepping up uh, their own games, of course. And this is uh, what uh, I call the new geopolitics of supply chains. And uh, even worse, uh, to, um, um, to be able to protect ourselves against the one who would like to weaponize our dependencies. And we see this, unfortunately, uh, uh, every day. On Monday, negotiators settled on a final deal, which will aim to boost domestic supplies of essential materials like lithium and nickel. Essentially, no single country should provide more than 65% of supply of certain materials. There are also recycling and production targets, the most ambitious of which is that the EU should process 40% of its annual need for 16 strategic materials by 2030. 
That agreement still needs to be rubber-stamped by governments and the European Parliament, but it is still expected to become law early next year. That all sounds pretty good, right? Well, not quite. There's a big parallel with energy supply at play here. When the energy price crisis hit the globe last year, governments scrambled to subsidise bills and secure supply where they could find it. Despite its potential for immense savings, both financial and carbon emissions, energy efficiency policies always seem to be the bridesmaid, never the bride. For raw materials, consumption doesn't seem to factor much into the equation either. I caught up with PowerShift's Michael Record to hear more about this facet of the agreement. Uh, so Michael, the, the Critical Raw Materials Act, we have this agreement, um, it sets higher recycling rates, um, that came out in the agreement process as I understand, but it doesn't really do anything to um, tackle consumption, the, you know, the initial how much lithium or cobalt or whatever we're using. Um, is this problematic and, and why? Yes, it is. Um, the first thing is uh, we welcome that the recycling targets or the recycling benchmark is now much higher, coming from 15% uh, and in the future be 25% of all the raw materials we need uh, should have a second, third, fourth, whatever life. Uh, so this is good. Even it might be even higher um, because when we have a look uh, for, for example, copper or other raw materials, uh, they have already a higher recycling target. But uh, the EU is not uh, tackling the high demand and the high consumption. So normally we also have to mitigate our demand and uh, we also have to talk about reduction. And this is an issue because in a lot of segments, we will need more metals. Let's take, for example, the renewables. We fully agree that we need more metals for wind, PV, and other technologies. At the same time, mm -hmm. uh, it will be quite hard to make a change from the combustion engine one-to-one to, -one to e-mobility cars. So there, the EU should identify sectors where we have alternatives, and the alternative to a 2.5 heavy car might be a bus, a bike, or even a smaller car and lighter car. This is something the EU uh, missed in this critical raw material. And it's also not talking about design. Because design is quite crucial. Uh, we are wasting a lot of so-called strategic minerals or strategic metals because the products they are in are only with us for one, two, three, four, five years. Then we throw them away and these specific metals and minerals are only in very small portions in these uh, gadgets so that we lose them for the humanity in the future. I'm sorry that we only had about 10 minutes or so on this particular episode of The Jolt to dive into this issue, uh, because it really is a fundamental aspect of the energy transition. So many stories to tell, so little time to do it in. But stay tuned to Foresight, as we will be doing much more about the world of raw materials very soon. Thanks for joining me for today's Jolt. We'll be back on Friday with another edition. In the meantime, if you're a subscriber, check out the latest episode of The Policy Dispatch. This one is all about how Moldova has managed to dig out an energy transition opportunity from the crisis that is Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Also, be sure to check out our latest deep dive on e-fuels and why they might be a total non-starter for the road transport sector. That article is from our new magazine, which we will have many more details about in Friday's episode, so please do join me then. 
The Jolt is free to air, so please do share the episodes with your friends and colleagues if you enjoy listening. You can also sign up to our newsletters so you don't miss any climate and energy updates and analysis. There's a link in the show notes. Thanks to everyone behind the scenes at Foresight for helping to make The Jolt possible, and shout out to Mute Island for providing the theme music. Until next time, thanks for being a part of The Jolt. Thank you.